0: Thank you for bringing another word from God. All right. It's good to see you all this week as we had many of us nice meals and Thanksgiving and some of us are still traveling, some of us just got home. Leland, I'm so glad to back, that you're back. I missed you. Um, so this morning uh, we have already had the first Advent candle lit. And that is the candle of hope. And as this was being done, you heard some scriptures that tied into that theme of hope. Something to keep in mind, not just this Advent season, keep it in mind every Advent season, is that the candles are not simply just to get us excited about Christmas. They're not only a Christmas tradition that brings warmth to our hearts, but they are to prepare our hearts the hearts of believers, is to prepare our hearts ultimately to be prepared for the return of Jesus, our King and Lord and Savior. Yes, we're reminded of prophecy fulfilled as we go through the Advent season. We're reminded of the kindness of God that was manifest in the birth and life of Jesus, of the faithfulness of the many characters in the Christmas story, of the excitement of the shepherds, the longing of the wise men, the joy of the angels. We will remember that this child, the Christ child, was predicted for centuries throughout many prophecies, And such as those that are on the banners here in the sanctuary, which we get, part of that is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which says, "...for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These things about the Christmas story are well worth remembering and celebrating. But let us not leave our Christmas celebration as only a backward looking remembrance of Emmanuel, God with us. Let our anthem for Christmas be the Hallelujah Chorus. You've certainly heard the song. Even if you didn't know what it was called, you've heard, most likely, the Hallelujah Chorus. It's one of the most familiar songs within a much greater work called the Oratorio Handel's Messiah. And the Hallelujah Chorus actually and that has nothing to do with christmas did you know that at least it has nothing to do with the nativity story the hallelujah chorus is straight out of revelation Revelation 19 says this, after, after I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So keep this in mind when you next hear the Hallelujah chorus. By the way, it may be worthwhile for you at, at some time to sit and listen to the entire Handel's Messiah. I am telling you, I, I took the couple hours it takes once to sit there and listen with the lyrics in hand and you will not find a more moving uh, story of the whole redemption story of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And I would say, I should probably step away from the pulpit when I say that, but anyway, it's as close, I believe, to inspired music that you'll find in this world. Handel set the orchestration to the Bible story about Jesus. And the reason that kings stood to their feet at its conclusion is because although the music was swelling and moving people, it was the story being told which culminates in the hallelujah chorus where we have moved all the way from for unto us, a child is born. Remember, that's part of the Messiah as well. And that's also straight out of scripture. And it's moved to this Stunning lines from Revelation. Hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I'm doing you a favor by not singing it, by the way. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Forever and ever and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. If you've never heard that with the full orchestration and the full chorus, you should go onto whatever music source you use or on YouTube or somewhere and you need to See it and hear it for yourself. My friend, Handel wrote this, not like some composers of his day. There were composers that wrote for the church, not necessarily believers. He wrote these songs with full faith in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe that just as God, by his Holy Spirit, enabled those men of ancient times to beautifully and artistically build that temple and all the ornaments therein, I believe like that, Handel was empowered from on high to write this music. That's just my opinion. I don't know where else to, uh, any other way to understand how this song could move people to stand to their feet whenever and wherever it's performed. So in the end, the hallelujah chorus, while it has nothing to do with the birth of Christ, it has everything to do with the final disposition of Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and who will reign forever and ever. So remember this every Christmas, that we thank God and we celebrate his love that was demonstrated in the nativity, and this should remind us of the glorious return of Christ that will happen someday in a sudden and amazing way and that those who are found to be faithful in Christ will sing with that heavenly chorus. Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, as wonderful and moving as it is, is but a glimpse of the chorus to come that those who are in Christ will sing with the multitude in heaven. And so we light these candles, not simply as a remembrance, but as a promise yet to be fulfilled. We take the comfort of knowing prophecies concerning the Messiah were fulfilled in Christ, and this helps preserve our hope that the future he has promised to all his saints is a certain future. And with all of that in mind, let's look back at Luke, where we've been studying. And this morning, we're going to briefly look at what happened at the birth of John the Baptist. And we find it in starting in verse 56, which is kind of, I wasn't sure if to tag it on to last week's sermon or to put it on this one. It's kind of in between. But we're going to start with 56, which says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Like I said, it kind of hangs between two, two narratives. She, Mary, she remained uh, there with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. Now, last week, we looked at the Magnificat, which was Mary's song of praise and worship. Her baby, so newly conceived that in a normal pregnancy, the mother would not even know she's pregnant yet. Then yet, this child was very different, very special. It caused a reaction, you remember, from her cousin Elizabeth's child, who was to be John the Baptist, and who leapt in the womb when Mary entered the house. Two unborn children, not potential humans, two unborn children, not simply embryos, are in some way relating to one another. Elizabeth and Mary had experienced God's gracious provision. In Elizabeth's case, a child after she had long given up hope of motherhood. In Mary's case, a gift of being selected by God to carry the Messiah. God with skin on, as some people like to say. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit because of her encounter with Mary and the unborn baby Jesus. She recognized that Mary's baby was her Lord. Lord. And Mary reacted with that beautiful confession of faith. We went over that. She was a psalmist and a prophet at the same time. And she, a young woman, we might even say a girl, spoke words so beautiful and eloquent and powerful and true that they became for all time part of Holy Scripture. Now remember that. Our confession of faith is that Scripture is breathed out by God. It's without error, or inerrant we say sometimes. It's infallible. So we are certain that Mary truly said these things. And Elizabeth said the things that were recorded about her. Now in verse 56, it says, Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned home. If we do the math, we had read earlier that she came to see Elizabeth when Elizabeth was in her sixth month. Uh, And so it's possible Maybe even likely that Mary was present at the birth of John. One writer even suggested perhaps Mary helped deliver the baby. However, we cannot be certain on that because the Bible doesn't clearly tell us. But it says she stayed about three months, and since she got there in the sixth month, we know that she was either there right up until John was born or right after. Then she returned to her home And that it says her home in Scripture, not Joseph's home, indicates that they still had not yet begun to live together. And then in verse 57, it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. This statement seems very simple, very straightforward. In fact, you could skip over it and think it didn't really mean much because it's so obvious, right? It was time to give birth, and she gave birth. Oh, okay, (laughs) you know. Not many of us would describe our own experience that way. I don't think I've ever said anything about my girls being born that way. The time came for Janelle to give birth and she gave birth to a daughter. We we tend to say much more, don't we? We describe the timing in the hospital and so on. How long was the labor? What was the height and weight? How many fathers have been chastised when they called family or friends and said it's a girl or it's a boy only to be grilled on the height and weight? And all the other stuff grandmothers and aunts want to know about, right? Did any of you get chastised for not knowing that? Show of hands. Anyone? No? I'm the only one. And many of us fathers, well, we don't worry so much about those things. So most of us would not simply say, like verse 57, the time came to give birth and she, gave, she bore a son. Well, maybe an engineer would keep it that simple. I don't know. But most of us say something like this. Like I said, when Gabby was born, we were at my brother-in-law Mike's birthday party, and the water broke, and he was hoping she would be born on his birthday. But the labor went on until 3.17 the next afternoon. It was exhausting that it took that long. And it was rough on Janelle, too. Yet, in the simplicity of verse 57, let us remember that the very birth itself needs no embellishment. Nor does it need to record the weight in pounds and ounces, nor the height, how many inches the boy was. So for all the aunts and grandmothers out there, may I say with certainty that the Bible does not record these details. So they must not be that important. So when a new dad doesn't know the height and weight, give him a break. Okay. (laughs) Hopefully by the second child, he will know that this is vitally important information that must be conveyed to all interested parties. What is the response, though, of the neighbors and relatives? The same response we ought to have for any good news, especially the birth of a child. Verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Of course they did. Good neighbors and good relatives rejoice with those who rejoice. And in this case, it had to be known that this was not the typical pregnancy. And so they rejoiced. Why? Because they had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Elizabeth had joined the likes of women who were legends to the people of Israel, yet nothing like this had been recorded for centuries. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, now Elizabeth. This was very significant. Remember, these are people who had only known about things God had done in the ancient past and had never experienced them for themselves. This was not something that was in the normal course of things. There had been no prophet, none of the miraculous, not in their lifetimes, not even in the memory of anyone they knew. Suddenly, God was acting in a real and tangible way in their midst, So the infant Jesus was yet to be born, and many years from beginning his ministry, John's birth was a sign that maybe, just maybe, God was beginning to work in this generation. And is it not the same for us? We seem unaware of God in a personal way. We've heard of him. We know something about his word, but it's impersonal. It doesn't make sense to us until God himself, through his word and through his spirit, draws us to himself and this miracle of rebirth still happens today every time a sinner repents and puts faith in christ there's a miracle of birth the rebirth of a person into the family of god and into the kingdom of god And so they rejoiced and celebrated because the Lord had shown great mercy to her. In fact, I think we could say and be on solid ground here that through this birth, he was showing great mercy not only to Elizabeth, but to all of Israel. In time, this baby would be used by God as a prophet who called people to repentance and prepared them to receive the ministry of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great mercy? And the pattern is the same today. John's preaching called people to repentance and once they truly repented, they were baptized into that repentance and then they were prepared to understand and receive the ministry of Jesus and the faith in him that brought salvation. Indeed, this was great mercy. Verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So circumcision was part of the covenant. It was ordained by God for the people of Israel that on the eighth day after the birth, boys would be circumcised. And this was usually done with great celebration. So people came to be part of this celebration. And now we get to this interesting point. It says they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, who is the they? From verse 58 and 59, it was the neighbors and relatives. In Israel in those days, did the neighbors and relatives name the child? No, they didn't. The parents did. And if the parents couldn't come to agreement, the father would have the final say. So why does it say that they would have called him Zechariah? Well, this seems to me to be a way of saying that they just assumed that he'd be named for his father. Now, it was not automatic that the firstborn son was named for his father. We see this in many of the genealogies of Scripture. Yet it was the case sometimes that the first son was named for the father. And this was probably more likely if the father had been a person of status and Zechariah was a person of status because he was a priest. And so they would have called him. I think that just means that was their opinion. They would have called him that. And verse 60 says, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Elizabeth either was told by Zechariah by writing about his encounter with the angel of Gabriel, or perhaps Elizabeth was told by the Holy Spirit, but she knew that the child was to be named John. So normally the naming of a child was up to the parents, and I said that a moment ago, but in the miraculous accounts of scripture, there are times when God himself determines the name, or God himself changes someone's name, right? And when God does that, he's making clear that person is under his authority. The one who names is the one that has authority. So not Zechariah, but John, And then they had another objection. That's not a name of anyone in your family. Verse 61, they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. So the neighbors and relatives think this is strange. Okay, you're not naming after the father. Okay, at least name him after one of your relatives. Now this conversation, it seems, had been with Elizabeth. Remember, Zechariah is still mute. So he can not interject into the conversation. But now they're bringing him into the conversation. Verse 62, they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They made signs to him. So some have thought this means that not only was he mute, but also deaf during his time of silence that Gabriel told him about earlier. And that is a possibility. If we look at Luke one twenty, where we studied some weeks ago when Zechariah was... Uh, receiving his message from Gabriel the angel in the temple, he said this, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that those things, these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So some have taken that to mean silent and unable to speak. Some translators say that means he was silent, meaning he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. And since we're translating from ancient Greek into English, there is a pretty good allowance that that's possible. It's a very plausible explanation of why would they make signs to him. Then in verse 63, it says, He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. So picture the situation They've had this discussion with Elizabeth. She insists the name is John. Now they make the father understand, well, they want to know his take on this, and he answers the same. And he does not say his name will be John. He says his name is John. When the angel of God says something is determined by the Lord, it's going to happen. Certainly, Zechariah, having had nine months of being able to unable to speak, and possibly deaf as well. Certainly, in that nine months, he had probably decided in his heart, from now on, I'm going to obey God and believe. Verse 64 then says, And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah, being freed from his silence, uses his first words, the words that he has for nine months not been able to use, His first opportunity to speak, he uses to worship. Next week, Lord willing, we will learn more about Zechariah's song. They call it the Benedictus. And for now, let us note that his first words were used to bless God. And then the passage wraps up 65, the fear. That fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The word fear here does not mean frightened, uh, as in scared so much. It's probably reverence or respect. Remember what they're witnessing here. This is something completely outside the realm of any experience that any of them had ever had up to this point encountered. They had heard of how Zechariah came out of the temple unable to speak. It was known that he had a vision that he had seen there. And then this old lady, Elizabeth, had given birth And now at the circumcision ceremony, after confirming the name of this child, Zechariah is suddenly able to speak. And so it should not surprise us at all that this shook people up a bit. And so people talked, and they wondered, and this was probably the main topic for some time. And certainly years later, when John began his public ministry, some of them remembered this unusual birth. These things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. What do we have to talk about? If this birth was enough for people to talk about, is your rebirth enough to talk about? Are people in our world today that don't know Christ they would find that to be a pretty stunning story if we told them, I was dead, but now I'm alive. They were talked about through the whole hill country of Judea. What do you have to talk about through the whole hill country of Palm Beach County? There's no hill country. Well, the golf course, I guess, but <laughs> it's built on a garbage heap, so it's got a hill. All right. Many people have no idea what Christmas is about. Will you tell them? It's, we're just talking about it this morning with someone else, and I've, it's been a frustration every year for me as well. We've got this Advent kit, which I encourage you to take and do it with, with your spouse and with your family. Um, the Names of Christ, there's a new one each day for the for starting December 5th. Great way to study some Scripture together and and get excited about Christmas, but more importantly, learn more about Christ. But a frustration is that every year you see all these, I'm using quotes, air quotes here, advent calendars. Get your Star Wars Lego advent calendar or your Mickey Mouse advent calendar, whatever it might be. They have nothing to do with Christ. They're a countdown to Christmas, more or less. With no but, but all they're getting people excited about is. Christmas presents, really. Some of them even have chocolates in them, which I do like chocolates. But, um, but, but many people have no idea. This is actually true. They have no idea what Christmas is really about. And even if they knew that a baby was born there, they couldn't tell you another thing about it, what it meant, why he came, Are you going to tell them? If you've been drawn by God to faith in Christ, that means, because Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. If you have come to faith in Christ, that means the Father drew you to himself. And if he's done that, who will you tell It said that they were celebrating with Elizabeth because she had received great mercy. If you're in Christ, you've received great mercy. Great mercy. Who will you tell? And why was he named John, by the way? Well, the simple answer is God said it would be his name. That's the easy answer. But do you know what John means? I remember if we have any Johns in here. I don't think we do today. The name John means gracious. Gracious. The grace of God is that he sent John to prepare people because remember what John would end up doing? And we'll learn about that as we go through the gospel of Luke in time. John was sent by God to prepare the way for Christ. How did he do that? He called people to repentance. And I've told you this before. I was once rebuked, not here at Oasis Church, another church, because I used the word repentance 31 times in one sermon. And that was offensive to the person with the complaint. But I can tell you this. I have... No lost sleep at all at using the word repentance because God calls everyone to repentance, including every one of you. And I can say that without losing any sleep. In fact, I'd lose sleep if I didn't. Because I love you. God gave me that love for you, by the way, because some of you I wouldn't be able to love without God's help. <laughs> I'm kidding. A little bit. <laughs> Gracious was his name, and great mercy was given to Elizabeth. And the people all around, the neighbors and the family that came for that circumcision their excitement was for her and her giving birth to a baby, which we would have for anyone. We love babies. But especially a lady who hadn't had a baby and she went through her whole life and everyone could see them being faithful. Scripture says they were faithful. And yet, for whatever reason, they hadn't been able to have a baby. And now they would. So people said, wow, that's great mercy the Lord has shown you. Little did they know how much the mercy applied to them as well. The grace of God is that he prepares people to receive Christ by doing a regenerating work in their heart. And this regenerating work begins with conviction of sins. Because the Holy Spirit, you can look about this and check me out if, I, if you don't believe in me. In John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, Jesus specifically says what the Holy Spirit is going to come and do. Now, a lot of people think it's a lot of crazy stuff. Well, the Holy Spirit's here to do this or that or whatever and get me all excited. It's here to give me an emotional lift or all of this stuff. Some of that's true. But the thing that the Holy Spirit does, according to Scripture, is that he convicts people of sin. Why? So that they will repent. So that they will trust in Jesus. So that they'll know they need a Savior. So that they say, wow, I'm in big trouble here. If I die in my sin, I am going to hell. I'm going to suffer for all of eternity. And I'm going to know about it. I don't just disappear. There's eternal life for everyone. But for... Some people, it's eternal death more that you're continually dying but never die. And so the graciousness of God is that he gives the Holy Spirit who, when God's word is spoken or read or preached, the Holy Spirit causes people to be convicted of their sin so that they realize the need for a Savior. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Plus, there's the fruits of the Spirit, all of those things, too. But most important is he does a regenerating work where he brings a hard heart and starts to turn it into flesh and makes the sorrow come, which is the next thing, when they're convicted of their sins. A true person that's coming to faith in Christ will have godly sorrow leading to repentance. I've introduced some new members lately. We're going to be introducing some more maybe as early as next week. Um, And one of the things that I'm looking for when I hear those testimonies is, was there a godly sorrow that led you to repentance? Because if there's not, frankly, you might be a false convert. If you've been in church and you said all the things and you know all the words and you know all the songs and you even know how to behave, but you have never felt a godly sorrow for your sins, that led you to repent to those, of those sins and say, I need Jesus. You may be a false convert. If I use the word false convert too many times, I might get fined, I don't know. but I say this because I have love in my heart for each one of you. There, it's very possible someone could be in the church here for decades and never have felt the godly sorrow leading for repentance. My prayer would be that God's scripture would pierce your heart, and that his Holy Spirit would take your heart and give you that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And then repentance is the pathway to faith. But it's all a gift. Even the faith is a gift from God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So put faith in Jesus. Let God's word settle in your heart your need for the Savior. And then when you hear that hallelujah chorus and you hear about the King of kings and Lord of lords who shall reign forever and ever, you will know that's my Lord. How do you get there? The Holy Spirit draws through God's word, causes a person to feel convicted for their sins, leading to godly repentance, leading to faith in Christ. Put your faith in Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this Advent season, that for us who believe that you would stir in our hearts to be more excited and faithful than ever before, that we would be challenged, that the world around us needs this story, this need, they need this good news. And Lord, bring us out of our comfort zones if we need to be brought out, that we could share this message with others. Lord, if there's anyone here listening either online or right here in person and they're saying to themselves, I don't know if I've ever had a godly sorrow leading to repentance. I'm not sure. Lord, I pray that you would do something in their hearts that would bring it to the point of them having no mistake about it. That they would have assurance of knowing the truth of Scripture, agreeing with you of their sinful condition, and putting faith in the Savior unto salvation. Lord, would you do that, please? It's the work only you can do, God. We thank you that you have done that work in many of our lives, and we pray that you will use us to continue doing that work in other people's lives as well. Lord, bless all that we do together as Oasis Church during these holidays, from the youth group to any other activities we have in D6. Oh, Lord, may your word and your Holy Spirit continue to draw. In Jesus' name, amen.